Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23? We're in the home stretch, aren't we? When I say we're in the home stretch, it could be a long home stretch, but we're in the home stretch. But this morning we find ourselves in Matthew 23 in our study in Matthew's Gospel, which takes place a couple of days before the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, as we have pointed out, at this point, the spiritual leaders in Israel are in what we would call full throttle mode, trying to find something they can use against the Lord to have him arrested and crucified. Jesus has been using the opportunity to really condemn them for their hypocrisy. First of all, to the multitudes who were standing there. We saw this last time in verses 1 to 12. And then after Jesus warns the multitudes to beware of these so-called religious men, then starting in verse 13, he turns directly to the scribes and Pharisees, who were also still standing there, and begins to condemn them to their faces for their hypocrisy. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. The Greek word is a word that means mask wear. It was used of an actor on stage playing a part. That's exactly what was going on with these men. Their piety was nothing more than an act. They were playing a part. Uh, they were giving people the impression they were uh, godly and sincere men of God, but in reality, uh, they were phonies. Pure and simple. Now, as we pointed out last week, the chapter falls into two main parts. Uh, Jesus instructs the multitudes, verses 1 to 12, and then Jesus indicts the scribes and Pharisees, verses 13 to 36. Verses 37 to 39 actually form an introduction or a transition into chapter 24. So we'll kind of hook those with chapter 24 when we get there. But last week we looked at verses 1 to 12, now this morning... We want to begin looking at verses 13 to 36, where Jesus indicts the scribes and Pharisees. Now, in this section, he pronounces eight woes upon them. And whenever God in the Bible pronounces a woe, it's always synonymous with judgment. You can read Isaiah 5, Revelation chapters 8, 9, 11, and 12 to see what I'm talking about. Whenever God pronounces a woe, <laughs> woe, it's not good. All right? It's not good. So keep that in mind, all right? This is the, a term of judgment. But we look at woe number one, woe one in verse 13, where Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, the Greek verb here indicates people who are trying to get into the kingdom. They're God-seekers, in a sense. Yet they are being hindered from entering by the scribes and Pharisees. Look, it's one thing for a person not to want to enter the kingdom of God themselves. It's quite another thing for them to stand in the way blocking somebody else from entering. How were they doing that? By teaching the traditions of men instead of the truth of God. But we see it also in the perversion of God's truth to make God's truth say something it really isn't saying. You know, Paul marveled. That the Galatians, as soon as Paul left town, he started a church there. Gave him the truth. He leaves town to go on to other places to minister. And no sooner did he leave, they allow these false teachers to come in who convince them to embrace another gospel. A false gospel which couldn't say so twisted it couldn't save anybody. And Paul said, I marvel that you're so soon turning from the gospel of grace that I gave to you to another gospel, which is not really another gospel. It's a perverted gospel. which can't save you. Peter bemoan the fact that there were those in the church who were twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. Well, guys, this is nothing new. 
I mean, ever since the Garden of Eden, when God gave his truth to Adam and Eve, Satan comes right in, or came right in, and began to twist it by saying, did God really say? Now, here's what he meant. You won't surely die. You'll become like God. See? False prophets, false teachers have been among God's people from the very beginning. Peter even said it in 2 Peter 2. He says, just as there were false prophets among God's people in the Old Testament, there are going to be false teachers among God's people in the New Testament period who will secretly bring in destructive or damning heresies, uh, teachings that will damn a person to hell if embraced, will, will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. But their judgment is coming, he said. Now in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves. You did not enter the kingdom yourselves. And those who were entering or trying to enter, you are hindering. What is the key of knowledge that these so-called scholars had taken away? Well, the key of knowledge was the true gospel, which alone could open the door to allow people to enter into salvation. Now, remember in John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will find salvation. Well, if Jesus is likened to a door, then what is the key that opens that door and allows you to enter into Christ and be saved? It's the gospel. And Jesus called it the key of knowledge here in Luke 11, verse 52. But the idea is that Satan knows that there's a lot of people that will never be atheists. All right? He knows that they've been brought up in... America is primarily a Christian nation. We've turned away from God, obviously, for the most part. But we have a Christian heritage. And there are a lot of people who embrace that Christian heritage to some degree. So if Satan's going to deceive them, he can't take the true gospel away from them altogether. So what he does is he bends and twists it like a key. A bent and twisted key won't open any door. A bent and twisted gospel won't open the door of salvation. And Jesus condemns these guys because, listen, again, they were the doctors of the law. They were the professors, the scholars. He says, you guys don't enter in because you're so twisted in your thinking. You don't have the true gospel. And you're standing in a way blocking others from entering the kingdom because you're teaching them your false doctrines. I think of these liberal professors in these Bible seminaries who take these young students and they destroy their young faith by telling them the Bible is full of errors, can't be trusted. And it's all about, really, it's not about sin and judgment. That's not even real. It's all about helping people, loving people. Going to other countries and, and digging wells for water, building schools, uh, teaching them how to plant crops. This is what the gospel is all about. Look it. Those are noble things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things. But Jesus didn't say, I have come into all the world to help you dig wells and build schools and so on and so forth. He says, I have come to what? To seek and to save those who are lost. And before he ascended back to the Father, he gave us the Great Commission, Matthew 28. He said, now, go into all the world and teach everybody what? Preach the what? The gospel? By what? Teaching them how to you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, house the homeless. Teaching them everything I have taught you, because those are the words of life. The true gospel. So, that's woe number one. Woe number two, verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Now, the scribes and Pharisees pretended to be 
men of God. True men and women of God have the Spirit of God in them, which means they have the nature of God. And God is a merciful God, right? He's a loving God. He's a kind God. These men purported to be men of God, but in their business dealings, they were cruel and merciless. How? Well, Jesus points out one way. He says that as soon as a husband died and left a woman a widow, and she couldn't pay the mortgage, we'll say, well, they didn't show her any mercy because a lot of these guys owned houses and they rented houses. They held the mortgage on houses. As soon as she couldn't pay, they would immediately foreclose and throw out in the street. And then to alleviate their guilt, they would stand on the street corners, which Jesus condemned back in chapter 6. They would stand on the street corners and offer these long prayers, ostentatious prayers, to, to, to show everyone how pious they were. Remember what James says in chapter 1, verse 27? He said, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. This is your religious. Here's, James says, here's what God's looking for among those who are religious. He says, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God doesn't care what church we go to. You give you're a Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Calvary Chapelite. He doesn't care. As long as that church is teaching the truth, it doesn't matter what you call yourself by. But if it doesn't work its way out into your daily life and the way you treat other people, then guess what? You could be religious, and yet you could be very deceived into thinking you're right with God when you leave this place and go out there, and in your business dealings, you are underhanded, you're cutthroat, you're cheating people, and then you come back on Sunday morning the next week, and here I am to show how pious I am. God is saying, you don't think I see through that? Isaiah 1, he says, keep all your religious stuff. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as wool, if you get your life right with me. He said, look, if you truly have me in your heart, it's going to work its way out in the way you treat your fellow man. Religion is worthless if it doesn't change your life. Well, how about woe number three? Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Hey, these men were very zealous in winning proselytes, even traveling all over the known world, as Jesus said, to win even one. But he said, when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. A proselyte was a person who converted to Judaism. And in the process of converting to Judaism, at one point, they were circumcised. They were baptized in the sense that they went through the ritual purification rites of the Jewish people. And after that, they were declared now converts or proselytes to Judaism. And oftentimes, guys, they were more zealous for Judaism than even those Jews who were born into the faith. All right? And this is what Jesus refers to when he says that these converts, that these scribes and Pharisees won to Judaism, became twice as much a son of hell like the scribes and Pharisees even who were born into Judaism. Now, in that regard, I think that the scribes and Pharisees back then were just like, we'll say again, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are today, very zealous to win people to their religion. Before I became a Christian, I would see Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, I'd see them out there witnessing and knocking on doors, and I, I just had, I just thought, wow, these are really spiritual Christians. I had no idea what they actually taught or believed. But in my mind, I thought, wow, they are really good Christians because look at how zealous they are to win people I thought, to Christianity, to Jesus. Little did I realize they were zealous, all right, but they were zealous to win people to their religion. Paul even said this about the Jews in Romans 10. He said, look, 
I bear witness to these guys. They have a zeal for God. No doubt about it, these Jewish people. But their zeal is not according to knowledge. They don't preach the true gospel. They preach a gospel based on works. Works do not save us. They don't preach the true gospel of grace, which is a gift from God, which you receive by your faith. And the problem that Jesus is alluding to here, when he says that once these folks are converted, they became or become twice as much a child of hell. Why did he say that? Listen to me, okay? Once a person is taken from unbelief and convinced that a certain religion has the truth, again, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, I'll pick on them for a while longer. Now they've gone from unbelief, they don't believe in anything, now they have embraced something like Mormonism, and now we come along with the true gospel, and what do we have to do? We've got to back them out of the false faith they've embraced, which is very hard because of Jesus, that they become very zealous. You know, Once a person, all their life has been an unbeliever, of, of, they don't believe in anything, and you get them to believe that Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, they're the true people of God, once they sign on to that, they're pretty zealous for that newfound faith. Now we come along, we've got to back them out of the false faith they've embraced, go back and deal another step back to deal with the unbelief that they had embraced initially, and now then we've got to move them forward into the true faith. That's very difficult. We know all salvation is a miracle from God. But it's very difficult once a person has embraced a lie, which they think is the truth, to back them out of that and get them to embrace the true gospel. And that's why, guys, listen to me, false teachers... And, and listen to me, they're not just Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. You have false teachers in the Evangelical Church of Jesus Christ. And they're increasing in number because, as Paul warned us, in the last days, the time just prior to Jesus' return, false teachers would proliferate, come into the church, proclaiming themselves to be true shepherds, but they would be wolves in sheep's clothing. They would present a false gospel. They would cause apostasy to take hold in the church, which is... Uh, uh, leaving the true faith and embracing something other than the true faith, but staying in the church. If a person wants to become a Mormon, say they're coming to our church. At one point, a Mormon gets a hold of them, and they decide, uh, I think Mormonism is really the truth. And so they leave our church to become a Mormon. That's sad, and we pray for them. But at least we know where they are, right? At least we know where they stand. When a person comes into the church, though, and has embraced false doctrine but stays in the church and proclaims to be the truth, that's much harder. Because these people are now masquerading as true shepherds, true teachers, pastors, and so on, when in fact they are not. Jesus had a lot to say about this in Matthew 7, when he warned against these wolves in sheep's clothing. And I'll tell you what, guys, they are everywhere. You can't turn on Christian TV without seeing a tremendous amount of false teachers all proclaiming to be genuine men of God, and women too. It's a sign of the last days. We'll talk about that more in a moment, but here's the thing. In this regard, look, any false teachers or evangelists, they're extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, beware, okay, beware. You're walking down the street, and there's some construction going on, and you see a fence up, and on the fence is a giant sign, white sign, and red letters, beware. What does that tell you? Come on in? <laughs> you know, check us out? It says, don't come near this place. There's danger here. Jesus said, beware of false teachers who come to you secretly in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, when men's eternal souls are at stake, the church cannot, listen, cannot 
be passive and indifferent. Nor can it hide behind false humility that fears being judgmental or behind false love that fears offending, that fears offending. Christ was supremely humble, yet he never called evil anything but what it was. Christ was supremely loving, yet he never withheld a warning that might save his hearers from hell. And he had nothing but intense anger for those who, by their false teachings, led men away from God and directly toward hell, end quote. Let me just camp on this for a few minutes more, because it's so important, this subject. We are seeing so much coming into the church today in the way of false teaching. I have never known a time in my 33 years of ministry where I've seen more false teachers in the church who are being applauded as true men of God. They're invited to national conferences. Oh, I don't even have time to get into it. Invited to national conferences, evangelical churches. Invite these false teachers to come. They say the most outrageous things. I've got, I've got quotes, things you can't even believe a person could say. And instead of every pastor in that room getting up and walking out in protest, they're being applauded and given standing ovations. You tell me we're not in the last days where God's truth is almost secondary. As long as a guy has got a charisma about him, you know, so many people get, are getting sucked into false teachers. Why? They're tickling ears, first of all. And as Paul said in the last days, we had had these teachers that were coming to the church. Tickling ears, telling people what they want to hear, right? Not what they need to hear. But we're a culture that's given itself almost entirely over to celebrityism. And a lot of these guys, let's be honest, they're very sharp, aren't they? They're slick. They are good looking. They wear $1,200 suits. They have these nice smiles, you know, and, uh, you know, nice teeth. <laughs> All the better to eat you with, my dear. <laughs> and I see him up there on TV with these like, grinning all the time and just so positive and sweet and, uh, you know, just charismatic and, you know, and talk about a show. Talk about a performance, okay? But you know what? As long as the guy is slick, he looks good, talks good, the message is almost secondary today. It's style over substance, isn't it? Style over substance. That's, that's the tragedy. And when it comes to exposing doctrinal error that has entered into the church, it sometimes, listen, becomes necessary to name names and to quote the leaders in the church who have embraced and are promoting these false teachings. Now, we did this in our Battle for Truth series. You can go on our website, access it, listen to it. We name names. We quoted them. We called them out for what they were teaching. And, you know, whenever you do that, you're always going to get people that say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Name names. You can't name names. That's not loving. You know, that's, that's divisive. The church should be about unity. Really, that's a big one today. Unity is the most important thing over everything. Well, you know what? That is setting the stage for the coming of the Antichrist and his false prophet, the religious leader. The Antichrist will unite the world in one world government. The false prophet will unite the world in the one world religion. And unity is going to be the clarion call. All about unity. You have to emphasize unity if you're going to bring the whole world together in one religious system. The stage is being set, guys. Whenever you hear leaders trumpet unity, like if that's the most important thing in the church, that should be a red flag. You know what's the most important thing in the church? Well, his name is Jesus. But the truth that he gave to us, God's truth, is the most important thing in the church. Listen, 
Paul the Apostle had a lot to say about love and unity in the body of Christ. That's, that's for sure. But he still rebuked by name those in the church promoting false doctrine. I'll just have you turn to one passage. 2 Timothy 2. Listen to what Paul says here. And let's, let's see how this squares with what we're being taught or even told today in the church. Paul starts out with an exhortation to true believers in verse 15, 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 15. He said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Listen, rightly dividing the word of truth. What does that mean? Setting a course right down the middle of God's word. Don't stray to the right or left with some of these goofy teachings. My pastor used to always like to say, you will find that most of the time, if not all the time, the truth will be in the middle of the two extremes. And Paul is saying, set your course right down the middle of the word of God. But he goes on to say in verse 16, but shun profane and idle babbling. That's what he called the teachings of false teachers. All right? For they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. <gasps> he named names. <laughs> he can't name names. What's wrong with you, Paul? It's divisive. Apparently, Paul didn't care about unity if it was at the sake of truth. But he said, These two have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed and have overthrown the faith of some. Paul named names. Why are we protecting false teachers? Why do we want to give cover to these guys? Well, I know what, that for the most part, because people don't think they're false teachers. They're their favorite Christian guru. You know, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're celebrity. That's because the church is so biblically illiterate today. It's, it's breathtaking. But Jesus right here in Matthew 23 is confronting directly false teachers. And he's not tiptoeing around the issue, is he? He calls them hypocrites. He pronounces judgments upon them for their teachings and lifestyle. This is, this is good. Otherwise, if we're never to call out, rebuke, challenge these people, then Paul's admonition to Timothy, a young pastor in 2 Timothy 4, would be meaningless. Where Paul said to Timothy, you, Timothy, preach the word. And the idea was faithfully, in season, out of season. He says, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching, but the word is where our doctrine from, sound teaching, healthy teaching from God's word. Again, if unity was that important where we didn't ever challenge anybody who was teaching something that was unbiblical, then this, this exhortation would, would not have any purpose. Look, unity is important. In fact, it was so important that Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion in John 17, offered a prayer up to his father. He says, Father, one of the things he prayed was, Father, I pray that my disciples would be one with each other, unity, even as you and I are one with each other. Unity was very important to the Lord. But he went on to say, but the unity that he was talking about, the unity that was only um, legitimate was unity that was rooted in God's truth. He said, Father, sanctify them. Make them one by your truth. Your word is truth. It's, again, what Paul called sound doctrine. The Greek is healthy teaching. Healthy teaching. If unhealthy teachings enter the body of Christ, it becomes a responsibility of all of its members. Listen, all of you to mobilize, to purge it from the body, like, listen, white blood cells mobilize to purge 
invading diseases from the human body. But if the human body, which by the way is in unity with itself, isn't it? I mean, even a person that's sick, their body's in unity. I mean, everything is connected. Everything is in the right place, okay? But even if the human body, which is in unity with all of its members, becomes incapable of purging itself of the diseases that have invaded it, listen to me, that body is going to grow weaker and weaker until it finally dies regardless of how unified it is. Unity is not the most important thing in the church. It is truth. Truth keeps us healthy. Because when you know the truth, you will set yourself free from error. And we all know what AIDS is, right? And how it works. When AIDS invades the human body, the first thing it does is it attacks the body's immune system and shuts it down. This leaves the body defenseless to invading diseases, which eventually weaken and kill that body, don't they? I mean, AIDS doesn't really kill you. It just so weakens you because your defense system has been shut down. Your immune system has been compromised. But you can't, your body can't fight, off and can't fight off any longer invading infections. So your body just succumbs to pneumonia or something else. Well, listen to me. The body of Christ has given itself a spiritual case of AIDS. You say, well, how so? By neutralizing its defense mechanism. By neutralizing its defense against spiritual disease, false doctrine. By ignoring the, ignoring the command that we have been given in God's word to test all things and to hold fast to that which is good. In other words, test all teachings and hold fast, embrace tightly those teachings that are good. How do we know they're good? Because they're spelled out in God's word as being from him. You have to test all things. Remember what John said in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 1? He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. What does he mean? There's a lot of false teachers out there teaching a lot of wrong things. You've got to test these things. Test the spirits. How do you do that? Where do you get a spirit tester? I checked at Ace Hardware. They don't have any. You got one in your lap. You should. Hopefully you have one in your lap. Hopefully you use it all the time. Because as you test teaching next to the Word of God, it will show you what is of God, what is not of God. Remember the Bereans did this? Remember how Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, commended the Bereans? Because Paul had been north in Thessalonica, preached the gospel. Many of the Thessalonians got saved. He goes south to Berea and preaches there. And Luke commends these people because he said they were no, more noble, the people of Berea, than those even in Thessalonica. Because the people of Berea listened to what Paul had to say but then went home, got their scriptures out, and compared what Paul said next to the scriptures of God to determine whether or not he was really teaching them the truth. Now look, if these folks did that at the great preaching of, the, of Paul the Apostle, don't you think you should check Phil Balmar out when you get home? Don't you think that you should check out the guy on the TV or radio that's teaching some things, and you're listening going, wow, I've never heard that before. That should be a red flag right there, you know? But today, whenever Christians try to speak out against false teachings and the teachers that have brought them into the church, they are denounced and called divisive. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm wondering here how many people have read the book, Jesus Calling. I'm wondering how many here really have embraced that book and said, I, I, I've got family members that have embraced that book thinking it's the greatest thing in the world. And I've talked to them about it. Well, 
And there was a book that has just come out by author Warren Smith. Warren used to be in the New Age movement before he got saved. He is very aware with New Age teachings. And when he read that book, he saw all kinds of... Because Jesus is supposedly speaking to this lady. Whenever a devotional is written in the first person, you ought to, be very, you ought to run from that thing. Don't ever read a devotional written in the first person as if God or Jesus is talking directly. How dare you put words in God's mouth? How dare you present things that obviously do not line up with the Bible, but you present them in your little book as if God said them? You talk about incurring the stricter judgment. That book is loaded with New Age heresy. Warren Smith brings it out. That's just one example of so many things we could look at today. We have so many false teachers that have invaded the church, and when you try to stand up and correct them, the people that have embraced these guys, wanting to protect them, they tell you, well, touch not the Lord's anointed. See? Touch not the Lord's anointed. Well, see, that came out of something that happened in 1 Samuel 24. When God anointed David to be the next king of Israel because Saul was too corrupt and, and all, so on, Saul decided, I'm not going to let this kid take my throne. So Saul set himself for the next 10 years to pursue David, try to track him down to kill him. 10 years, David was running for, for his life. Uh, he got some men with him, but they were running from Saul, uh, hiding in caves and the clefts of the rocks and so on. Well, one day Saul is out chasing David to kill him. And it says in, in 1 Samuel 24, he goes into a cave to attend to his needs. I'll let you figure that out. Takes his robe off, throws it to the side while he's attending his needs, and doesn't realize that David and his men are hiding in that very cave. And Dave, one of David's guys whispers in his ear and says, David, praise God. God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Rise up and kill him. And David, in a moment of boldness, takes his knife out, and he cuts the corner of Saul's robe off. But then his conscience gets him. He says, no, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I will not physically harm the Lord's anointed. David did not touch the Lord's anointed, but he did rebuke the Lord's anointed, didn't he? When Saul left the cave, David appears at the opening and says, O King Saul. Saul turns around, sees David standing there, says, See what I have in my hand? I have a piece of your robe. I could have killed you just now. My men were encouraging me to do so, but I would not touch the Lord's anointed. But then he rebukes Saul by saying, why do you listen to those men who are trying to tell you I mean you harm? I mean you no harm. Why have you chased me like a partridge across the desert for these ten years? I am not your enemy, Saul. Oh, and Saul has a moment of conviction. Oh, my son David, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, you know, the guy was a basket case. He was a lunatic, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, one minute he's all sorry and repenting, and then, you know, after a few days he gets his mojo back and goes after David again. You know, so, you know. But the point I'm making is, no, David didn't touch the Lord. I'm not saying grab a false prophet and beat the daylights out of the guy. Why can't we? I don't even, a false prophet is not the Lord's anointed, by the way. There are people that think he is or she is. But Saul was the Lord's anointed. And if David didn't feel bad about rebuking the Lord's anointed, the true anointed of the Lord, then why do we have to feel bad about rebuking what we know is a false prophet and not God's anointed? You know, Peter was certainly God's anointed. He was chosen by the Lord to be a, an apostle. And yet, at one point, he was down in the area where there were Gentile believers. 
And he was eating with them, fellowshipping with them, had a good old time, right? And then some big shots, spiritual leaders from the church in Jerusalem came down, Jews, who were Christians. And Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles, wouldn't eat with them anymore. And when Paul saw that, he rebuked Peter to his face. He said, Peter, what you're doing is not right. It's hypocrisy. God is no respecter of persons. Why are you a respecter of persons? Why do you, when these big shots have come down from Jerusalem, why do you withdraw from the Gentiles and make the Gentiles feel like they're not worthy of your company anymore? That's wrong. Paul rebuked Peter. Look, we Christian leaders are not infallible. And there are times when we need to be corrected, challenged, held accountable. But listen to me, false teachers need to be exposed and driven from the church. We don't give them grace. We get rid of them. Send them packing. You don't let them conduct their ministry in your church. All right, how about woe number four? Starting in verse 16, where Jesus said, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever, whoever swears by the altar, <laughs> that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform that oath. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now, what's all this about? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees had devised a series of loopholes. Remember now, they were lawyers, okay? Not to pick any attorneys here, but, but attorneys are famous for finding loopholes or, or actually giving a promise in a contract, but then keeping there a few loopholes for which they can get out of the contract. And the scribes and Pharisees had developed or devised a series of loopholes in their oath-taking. If the, you were making a deal with them, and they swore something to you, they took an oath, and they said, uh, I swear by the temple of God I will perform this. You're thinking, by the temple of God, that's pretty good. It's good enough for me. But then later on, they wouldn't keep their promise. And, and they would say something to the effect, well, you know, I swore by the temple of God, but I didn't swear by the gold in the temple. <laughs> or I swear by the altar, the temple of God. Oh, that's the altar. Wow, that's pretty, okay, that's good enough for me. Then they would go back and say, yeah, I swore by the altar, but see, I didn't read the fine print. I didn't swear by the gift on the altar. Kind of like when you were young and you gave your word and then you didn't keep it. And somebody said, why didn't you keep your word? You gave your word. I had my fingers crossed saying, you know, didn't count. But look, in doing this, they were really exposing where their hearts were coming from, weren't they? When you, when you have the, the Lord inside your heart and the Spirit is there, He's the Spirit of truth. You know, before I was a Christian, I lied all the time. I lied even when it was easier just to tell the truth. I lied. You know, that's our fallen nature, you know. But once Jesus came into my heart in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, I detest lying. I feel that when you, we give our word as Christians, we should keep our word. There should be no little loopholes, no little fine print that we didn't mention, and now we're going to get out of it. I mean, didn't Jesus say this in, John, in Matthew 5? He said, don't even make oaths or vows in your normal dealings with people. He said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just give your word, and you should keep your word. Because that's what honors me. Giving your word and finding a way out of it might be, in some people's eyes, a shrewd business person. God says it's just wrong. It's just wrong. 
Jesus did go on to say, though, if you do make a vow, you better keep it. That's a solemn promise. You better keep it. How about one more? Woe number five, starting in verse 23. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You see, as with all legalists, the scribes and Pharisees were so meticulous in the little things. Right? In their case, it was even giving a tithe to God, which is a tenth, of the seeds produced by the herbs they grew. Now listen, Jesus didn't condemn them for this. Jesus did not condemn them for the practice. Because in the law of God, God did mandate that whatever you grew on your land, a tenth or a tithe belonged to God. You were to give a tenth of that to God. So they were actually right in doing this. In fact, Jesus acknowledges that in verse at the end of verse 23. He says, these you ought to have done. You ought to have tithed to God from your herb gardens. These you ought to have done, he said, without leaving the others undone. See, it wasn't the practice of tithing. Even tithing is something as small as the seeds from the herb, herb gardens that he was indicting them for. But he was indicting them for the hypocrisy that places such importance in relatively small matters like tithing again from your herb garden while neglecting the weightier. In other words, the far more important matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faith. I like what author J. Vernon McGee said on this subject. He's right. He said, I remember a dear lady who used to argue about the use of lipstick. You know, Christian women wearing lipstick. <gasps> That's scandalous. No Christian woman should ever wear lipstick. She thought, she thought it was awful. And yet she had the meanest tongue of anybody I knew. She didn't think that was so bad. But lipstick was terrible. End quote. I mean, when we were young in the faith, we just had gotten saved. I, I think I was still just doing a Bible study. We hadn't even started the church yet. We had a couple coming to the church, and, or excuse me, coming over. And it got to be Christmas time that year, and, you know, we didn't know anything. I mean, we, you know, we still had all the Santa Clauses hanging around the house and on the tree. And Boy, she took note of that. I think she counted the Santa Clauses that we had. <laughs> we don't have many more. But, you know, got rid of Santa. But uh, if you got Santa Clauses, I have no problem with that. But anyways, she, she po pointed it to our attention. She got a lot of Santa Clauses around the house here. Yeah, okay. I mean, she nitpicked on that, but in her marriage, it was terrible. She treated her husband like garbage, and today she's not even walking with the Lord. She's an alcoholic. Because legalists, they always nitpick, but they neglect the bigger issues. God is love. God is grace. God is mercy. You know, give me a chance to grow a little bit, for goodness sakes, before you rip on me for not being a Christian like I should be for 20 years, and I've only been a Christian for, what, what maybe six months. Give me some time to grow a little bit. Show a little grace, a little mercy. You know, Jesus responds to the scribes and Pharisees with, as one pastor said, a figure of speech unsurpassed for expressiveness, I love it, when he said, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, folks, I have to believe that unleashed a wave of laughter through the crowd, who was still standing there, by the way, because they all knew the scribes and Pharisees. And I'm sure the scribes and Pharisees made it known to anybody that even if a gnat lands in my cup of wine, I'll suck the wine through my teeth, strain the gnat out. Nothing's going to defile me. I don't care how small it is. A gnat was the smallest unclean creature. A camel, one of the biggest. Jesus said, you know, you... 
strain gnats, but you swallow camels. See, that was hilarious. I'm, and I'm sure that everybody there were like, oh, strain gnats, swallow cats, a good one, Lord. You know, that kind of thing. But, but here's the point, what he was making, okay? These men were so meticulous when it came to not defiling themselves with the smallest unclean thing, but then they were grossly blind to partaking in enormous sins like hypocrisy, dishonesty, cruelty, and greed. A classic example, I'm talking classic, would happen in just two days from this point. You see, these men had no problem railroading Jesus, an innocent man, by bringing against them false charges. They actually drummed up the charges against him. They had no compunction at all about railroading an innocent man and having him crucified because they didn't like him. They didn't like what he was teaching, even though they knew he was innocent. So they got these false charges trumped up, took him to Pilate because Pilate had to, had to sentence Jesus to die. But if you remember John 18, around verse 30, 28, John 18, Remember how they wouldn't go into Pilate's judgment hall? Why? Because it's Passover time. And they don't want to get too close to a Gentile lest they defile themselves. Okay? Then they couldn't eat the Passover. Wow. That's pretty holy. That's pre- Wow, that, they're re- really religious guys. Yeah, they thought so. It was okay to kill an innocent man. That wasn't a problem. See, what we're talking about. Look. We're done. Let me just say this. We'll close. What can we learn from what we've covered so far in this chapter? We want to, you know, we want, obviously, we was talking about the scribes and Pharisees, but the real issue here is religious hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy and facades and so on. There's a lot we can learn in our lives from the way these men lived. Primarily, we can learn that it's possible to keep the letter of the law while ignoring completely the spirit of the law. Well, what do you mean? I'll give you one example. In the law, God said, you shall not lie, right? Excuse me, you shall not, he said, you shall not lie also, but you shall not steal. Now, you can keep that law technically and still violate it in spirit. What do you mean? Okay, you're checking out the grocery store. You know how that works. Uh, the, The guy or gal gets you all checked out and all, and as the bagger's loading up your stuff, they start checking out the person behind you. Well, suddenly their can of tomato soup rolls with your stuff, and the bagger doesn't notice it, picks it up, you see what's going on, puts it in your bag of stuff. And you don't say anything. And if somebody were to say to you, well, you can't steal, I shouldn't steal it. They put it in my bag. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't take anything. Okay? Or, you know, the person checking you out gives you too much change. You know they've given you, instead of a, a five, they've given you a 20. You don't say anything. Well, but I didn't steal it. They gave it to me. You see what I'm talking about, right? You see what I mean? God hates religious hypocrisy. He hates any facades that give people the impression we are more spiritual than we really are. He wants us to be real. He wants us to be genuine. God could care less about the outward trappings of religion. Again, you could come here and be an usher, be a deacon, whatever. And if you leave here, though, and in the, in your, during your week in your business, you're ripping people off and lying about your product and so on. That's what God's looking at. It's not the facade of religion. See, as God said in the Old Testament to, to, uh, through Samuel to King Saul, God is looking at the heart. I believe he said that to Samuel with regard to one of David's sons, but Samuel was looking at the outward 
God sent him to, to the house of Jesse to choose, anoint the next king of Israel. And Jesse brings his sons out, and the firstborn, Eliab, comes out, good-looking kid, tall, dark, handsome, you know. Samuel says to himself, man, this has got to be the Lord's anointed, but it's a good-looking guy, you know. God spoke to Samuel and said, no, I haven't chosen him. Don't look at the outward, Samuel. Man does that. Height, stature, good looks, whatever. I look at the heart. And God is looking at our hearts. He does not want us to be phonies. He does not want us to be coming in here with a mask on, playing a part. He wants us to be real. He wants us to be genuine. And listen to me. If your relationship with the Lord is not working its way out into your daily life and the way you treat people, the way you represent the Lord, the way you either walk in truth or you do not, I guarantee you, look, if we're not representing God properly, he's not happy with our so-called faith. Hey, we all blow it. I'm not saying none of us are perfect. But we know if we're trying and we blow it, or whether we're coming in here, giving God lip service, going out there into the world, and we don't intend to apply any of this into our daily lives, because guess what? If I'm going to make the sale, if I'm going to be successful, i got to do certain things. i got to misrepresent the product, build it up when I know it's not that good. But i got to do these things. God understands. No, he doesn't. God wants truth in the inward parts, David said in the Psalms. And that's what we can take away from these guys. Jesus pronounced judgment upon these hypocrites. And no doubt he would say to his people, true people of God, don't be like this. I've delivered you out of that hypocrisy. When you were in the world, that's how you behaved. That's how you lived. You're my people now. I don't want you to live like that anymore. I want you to be truthful, people of integrity and character. When you give your word, keep your word. Oh, but Lord, I didn't realize that to keep my word, it's going to cost me now. So what? So I'll take care of you. The psalmist said, blessed is the person who swears to his own hurt. Gives his word, later on finds out it's going to cost him to keep his word, but he does it anyways because he wants to honor God. God says, I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll provide. Your responsibility is to, to honor me, to glorify me through your life by being upright and genuine. So may God give us grace, you know. May God, none of us here want to think of ourselves as scribes and Pharisees. And we're not. If you're a true Christian, you're not. But we can all fall into some things that are not honoring to God either. And our goal should be to be more like Jesus every day, not less. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you that through the rebukes that you gave to the scribes and the Pharisees, Lord, it forms a contrast in how you want your people to live. What they were, uh, Lord, you don't want us to be that way at all. Their lives were the circle with the line through it, Lord. Give us grace to not, you know, to realize the hypocrisy of these men and how it so uh, angered you because they were, they were presenting themselves as true men of God, but they were nothing but liars and hypocrites. And Lord, you, you want us to go out into the world and represent you in truth. When people know that we're Christians, they should see people of character, of integrity, who don't get involved with coarse language, filthy jokes, who don't, you know, say one thing and then do another. Give us grace, Lord, to be truthful, genuine, and to honor you in all areas of our lives. We ask it all, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.